In this passage, it's, there's some pretty cool things that you might not have noticed before. And I hope they'll encourage your heart today. And they'll direct you and help you as we seek to walk together uh, in love and honoring God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before the other his own supper... And one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. And then there's the familiar passage on the Lord's Supper, the very next passage. Paul, as he was exhorting these believers in Corinth about how to partake and how to, how to have the Lord's Supper together, he addressed some issues that the church was going to in Corinth. Now, mind you, he didn't say this was what the church right now in 2022 is dealing with, but it's same things, okay? Because uh, every body of believers will struggle with the same things. Now, this body of believers was not praised by Paul. Instead, they were scolded. And in discipleship, somebody had asked me not too long ago, they said, what's the difference in the passage where it says to reprove, rebuke, exhort? You know, when you think about reproving and rebuking, one of those texts actually means, one of those words actually means to embarrass somebody. To embarrass. Now, our culture today is so sensitive that if you embarrass somebody, they're like, I was embarrassed, I was emotionally hurt. And everybody is so in touch with their emotions, it's ridiculous today. But Paul didn't seem to have a problem with calling people out for their behavior. And in this text... He called them out for several things. He says, I'm not going to praise you. He says, why? He says, because you're coming together to worship God. But he says, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now, if you've been around church for a little while, if you've heard rumors of churches for a while, you understand one thing. Sometimes it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Sometimes you can go to church and it's not for the better, it's for the worse. You are literally hurt in the house of God. Um, since I live my life in the house of God, I understand this very personally. And so Paul described the church, and he says, I'm coming at you, I'm teaching you some things. He says, first of all, when you come together in the church, he says, he says, look, I want to address some things, but let me address one thing first. He says, I hear there be what? What does the text say? Verse 18, there be what? Divisions among you. And I partly believe it, Paul says. He's like, I heard some gossip and some rumors that you're having some trouble getting along. He says, I kind of partly believe it. You know what? You know why he partly believed it? Because he knew they were human. The first two brothers couldn't get along. In the Bible, you notice the first two brothers, one of them killed the other. Why are we surprised? And look, if your reason, my reason for no longer going to any church is that people in the church, given church, could not get along, it's a very bad reason because... Caleb and a um, Abel and Cain, they weren't even in church. They were out in the field and they couldn't get along, all right? I mean, they were just out in a perfect place, 
There was only four people on the planet at that time. But yet they couldn't get along. So why are we surprised when old problems pop up in new environments? The Apostle Paul had some very clear instructions for the church. And he had, these believers had adopted some strange practices around the Lord's Supper. And uh, to me, it sounds like a pretty normal group of people. They had divisions. They had heresies. And they were even getting drunk in church. The apostle dealt with it all clearly, and he gave us biblical counsel that helps us today. Must I say, we should be loving, we should be kind, but we ought to recognize that false doctrine is still false, and it must be avoided. Uh, it takes years to teach a church to observe all things whatsoever Jesus has commanded, and a growing church will constantly have new believers in various stages of life. For that reason, we will have to teach things over and over again, but we must also keep in mind that we all have a tendency to forget some things, and we need to be reminded of them and challenged and exhorted of the same truths again and again throughout our life because we forget the truths that we already have heard. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It happens. It happens to all of us. In Luke, right before Jesus was crucified we see him sitting down with his disciples around a table. And if you would join me there, I want you to show you um, what happened at that table. And then I want to show you the historical context of it as we get in the text this morning. In Luke 22, verse 14, look at what the Bible says. Luke 22, in verse 14. The Bible says... And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire, I have desired to eat this, what does he say? Passover with you. Okay? Keep in mind, it's not the Lord's Supper yet. It's not had not been considered that. They were sitting down to eat Passover, which was a meal. It says, For I say unto you that I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, gave thanks. And said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Notice the phrase, fruit of the vine. Until the kingdom of God shall come. He then instituted the Lord's Supper and partook of the bread and of the grape juice with them at that time. This custom and this tradition was based upon the Jewish law of the Passover. And join me if you would in Exodus 12. I want you to see the very first time the children of Israel celebrated the Lord's the, the, celebrate the, the uh, Passover. Exodus 12 in verse uh, in verse 6. Exodus 12 in verse 6. The Bible describes for us this Passover lamb. Now, it tells in the earlier in the earlier part of the passage that it was supposed to be a lamb, a lamb for every house. And he said, if, it, if the household be too little, in verse 4, for a lamb, let him take him and his neighbor next to him take it according to the number of their souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your account for the lamb. So they were supposed to take this lamb, and they were supposed to think logically and carefully, how much meat can we eat in our household? Because we're going to eat all of it for dinner. Just like when we get a deer... We know approximately what kind of meat we're going to get off of it. And uh, we know how much meat, 30, 40 pounds, 50 pounds of meat we're going to get off that deer. 
and, and maybe 20 pounds, whatever the size of the deer. And we kind of know and understand this is how much that deer is going to produce. In the same way with the lamb, they knew how much it would produce. And they were supposed to be very careful in selecting a lamb that would be the right size for their family. And if they were too small to eat one whole lamb, they were to invite their neighbors to come eat it with them. It says in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it from out of the sheep or from out of the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. There's a timed killing. That must have been a noisy night. All those sheep bleeding all over town. And everybody killed a lamb that night on a scheduled time. It's important we understand the historical context so we understand what we're dealing with here. This Passover, then in verse 6, it says, She shall keep it in the same, under the 14th day of the same month, the whole assembly shall kill it. Then in verse 7, they shall take the blood and strike it upon the two side posts of the upper doorpost of the house, wherein they shall eat it. And so the Bible describes they're supposed to take it and literally paint it upon the door. And they're supposed to put it around the door frame, signifying that the blood is protecting those inside that home. And it says in verse 8, And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat it not raw, nor sodden at all with water. So you can't cook it in water. You can't boil it. It says, But roast with fire, with his head and his legs, with the pertinence thereof, and you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. Have you tried to burn up a carcass of an animal? It's stinky. God says, if there's any meat left over, burn it up. No meat left over. So no leftovers from this meal. Thanksgiving, we all have a great feast, and you like the Thanksgiving leftover. This wasn't Thanksgiving. Okay, this is the Passover, and they kill it, they eat it, and anything left over needs to be burned up. You don't get leftovers from the Passover, because it's symbolic, and it's speaking of the sacrificial lamb who would come. When you understand that, and it says in verse 15, it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, even on the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. It says specifically, if you eat the soul that, uh, it says from the first into the seventh, the soul that, shall, that, that eats of it, it says, shall be cut off from Israel. So if anybody ate regular bread during that time period, they were to be removed from the nation of Israel. Wow. God's teaching them a lesson. He's teaching them a principle. They were responsible to eat the entire lamb. They were to eat it quickly with urgency and reminding them of how, they, how when they left Egypt, they had left in haste. When we celebrate an ordinance or tradition in the local church, it's wise to understand exactly why we do it and to allow the significance to encourage and motivate us into love and good works. And so Christ's sacrifice here compels us to live distinctly for the Master. See, the Lord's table reminds us of the great Lamb of God who died on that Passover over 2,000 years, 2,020 years ago for the rest of, uh, for all of the world. And the, the rest of the world, okay, the the rest of the world, those who do not know Christ, live in the excess 
of drunkenness. But the child of God has the privilege to celebrate this holy ordinance without indulging in carnal practices. And in, in 1 Corinthians 11, we understand the church had begun to use their liberty to serve their own flesh. And in the text, we're going to go back there right now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and look at this text. Uh, there's a lot of things they had allowed to come in their church. They had divisions, they had heresies, and they were at church, it says, being gluttons and drunkards. It says, everyone taketh before the other his own supper. And one is hungry, another is drunken. So they had brought the food to the church. Some people got to eat. The others did not eat anything. They were hungry because some people had been gluttonizing in the house of God. And when you study this word, which I did... The word to be drunken, it says another is drunken. It means they did partake of a lot. They had partaken of a lot. And, it, and one of the applications of that word is to be drunk to the extent of inebriation. So these people literally uh, have been practicing things they should not have been doing in the house of God. Paul could not praise them. Instead, he had to reprove them and he had to rebuke them. Uh, look at what had happened to their meetings in the house of God. Their church meetings brought more harm than good. The solution to this problem was the solution, and I'm going to get some help from some of my, my guys and ask them right on the spot, okay? Was the solution of the apostle in this text for them to leave the church because their meetings were causing more harm than good? Was that the solution, Brother John? Was the solution for them to speak ill of that church, Kamari? What was the solution? You look in the text, the solutions to deal with the problem and to stop the divisions, to stop the contentions, and to recognize in verse 19 that they which are approved may be manifest among you. Some were seeking to exert their authority, and they were not called of God. All right? So their church meetings brought more harm than good. That's a sad thing, but it was happening in Corinth. They were coming together to worship God. They were coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but their meetings had brought more harm than good because they were divided and they were divisive. Isn't it easy to be divided and divisive? The internet is awesome about that, right? You can post the most simple thing online, and yet it's considered divisive. And I've decided that, you know what, if somebody wants to argue with me online, I will probably uh, do one of two things. Either I will not reply to their argument, or B, I will delete the entire post, or C, I will eventually have to unfriend them, okay? Uh, because I am not going to deal with contention like that online and a lot of people hide behind a computer screen to, uh, to argue. And that's, our, that's the way our generation is, all right? Their church meetings, though, had brought more harm than good. And it was a sad plight on this church. Next, their division was commonly known. Paul says, I hear it. And he says, I partly believe it, in verse 18. Imagine the Apostle Paul, the one who's gone around and started all these churches coming, writing you a letter to your church. And by the way, I hear you guys have been divided, and I partly believe it. He says, I don't have that much confidence in you. He says, I think you probably fell for the division. He says, I think you bought into the division. 
He says, I think the church was divided. And it's a sad thing uh, when, a, when a church is divided. And by the way, uh, when we worship together in the house of God, we are all going to have differences of opinion, are we not? All right? And I have sought to, uh, as pastor, to respect your differences of opinion. And I appreciate that those of you in the room who have differed from me on various opinions, you have been very gracious. All of you have been very gracious in the way in which you handled it with me. And we have agreed that we're going to, you know what, we might not understand it the same way, but that's okay, right? And we've come to that agreement, and uh, we've understood that, you know what, this is what pastor's going to teach, this is what he believes the Bible teaches, but he's going to respect the fact that I have a right to have a different opinion, okay? Um, even though no scripture is given of private interpretation, it's not my private interpretation, it's not your private interpretation, but we're going to seek to work together and have a spirit of unity and humility in the house of God, and, and we can't do that if there is division. And uh, I tell you, sometimes our divisions are so petty and so carnal. They're so selfish. Uh, division, uh, maybe you've heard division like this in a church. By the way, it's not a biblical division. Nobody cares about my opinion. Is that a biblical reason to be divided? You know that nobody usually asks my opinion before they decide to do this or that. It's very rare, okay? I don't get people who don't ask me their, my opinion very often. I'm okay with that. I've kind of got used to it. I get used, people just kind of do what they're going to do. Now, do I think they should sometimes ask my opinion? Probably that would be a good idea if you read the Bible. Uh, that would be a wise idea. But I understand that because I am young, sometimes people don't feel like they can ask me. And that's okay and so I respect that and understand, look, not everybody's going to come and ask our opinion on stuff. But that's a very common reason people say, well, nobody asked my opinion. And uh, that, is, that is selfish. Ultimately, that is selfish if we are always worried about uh, somebody asking our opinion. I really want people just to get God's opinion, okay? Uh, and we will all be better if we just get God's opinion. So their division was commonly known, and it had been reported back to Paul, this church at Corinth was having some trouble because they were divided among themselves. Another thing was happening in their division, and Paul addresses this. And notice Paul even made an assumption about these believers. He says, For there must also, sorry, must be also heresies among you. Now, had Paul heard that there was heresies? No. But he made an assumption in the text. You say, is it okay? One leads to the other. When there's division, there's usually different sects, little groups of people that are divided over tiny things. They had let divisive, competitive spirits into the house of God. Now, if you've ever played sports, if you've ever played on a team, if you've ever done anything on a team at work, you understand there's going to be a multiplicity of opinions, and we've got to seek to work together for the common good speaking of the word of God, uh, and we ought to seek to work together for the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in this passage, their false doctrines were apparent. I have, I have asked anyone who comes to me and say, Pastor, I don't like the way you did that. Uh, uh, and I say to them, I said, dear friend, I don't like the way I did it either. But if you wouldn't mind, this is something I'm trying to do. Would you try to do it too? Would you go lead somebody to Jesus Christ? Would you see them saved and baptized? Would you make that your goal in life? I'm trying to make that my goal in life. I know I have things that I could do better, and sometimes I don't agree with myself. 
okay? If we be honest, do you agree with yourself all the time? Okay? You wake up at 5 in the morning, you're not going to be agreeing with yourself. You wake up at 3 in the morning, whatever, however early you wake up, uh, crank it up a few hours earlier, and uh, you wake up that early, you're not going to be agreeing with yourself about whether you want to get out of bed or not, okay? Um, and so we struggle agreeing with ourselves, and, and we ought to focus on the purpose to win the lost to Christ. And he said, there's these divisions that they which are approved may be made manifest. He says some people have the hand of God in their life and others don't. And he said it's going to be obvious. It's going to show up. It's going to show up. And you know what? If you just let things run their course, eventually, eventually, one tree produces false fruit. One tree produces good fruit. And so their false doctrine was apparent. And the apostle noticed it and he dealt with it. Next, in their church, they had something else. They were selfish in their worship. In verses uh, 22 and 20, 21 and 22, it says, uh, back in verse 20, for when you come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying you're not actually celebrating the Lord's Supper because for in, every, in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. He says you all are in such a hurry to go around and fill your plate. You've ever been at a, at a, at a, at a gathering, a potluck dinner? And you come through and you're one of the last ones. As hosts, my wife and I usually wait till we're the last ones. But sometimes, you know what? There's not enough food for the hosts, okay? Um, sometimes that does happen. And, and I've noticed that sometimes you have a big gathering and have a big meal. And sometimes there's not enough food. In this passage, they were eating to the excess. They were gluttons and they had eaten in excess because it says specifically that one was made hungry. He's saying, you know what, you have, have had selfish worship and selfish meetings, he said. See, worship is all about fulfilling a purpose for which God created us, and they were living for their own purposes. Uh, you know, our culture today struggles pausing for one hour or maybe two hours on a Sunday to meet with God. But here in this, in, in the Passover, understanding the original uh, Passover, they would have taken seven days to eat only unleavened bread, seven days to remind themselves to worship God, and they would prepare well for this meeting. Our culture today struggles with this much, and when we celebrate today the Lord's table, we have pure grape juice and we have homemade unleavened bread. Uh, now, in, the, in many churches, depending on what type of church you go to, there will be different types of wine used for the Lord's Supper. And this morning, uh, I want to explain why we use the one we use for the Lord's Supper and its specific connotation. We use unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. Unleavened bread means it has no yeast in it, has no rising agent in it, because it is unleavened. Leaven, yeast, produces corruption. And the bread could not have corruption in it, because the body of Christ is not corrupt. Okay, that's the significance. And so um, this is where I struggle. Uh, and you maybe have been at a church. Maybe you've seen this before. I did experience it once in Georgia. Uh, we went to a Christmas Eve service at a church, and they had a big goblet. By the way, uh, a COVID magnet, right? Okay. <laughs> now, in the Bible day, they were actually pouring out of that, okay? And they were drinking out of the same cup. Uh, I think we dealt, dealt with that, was it back in, what, the 60s, 50s, 40s, where we stopped drinking out of the same spoon at school, right? Remember they stopped all that because it was spreading germs, okay? So we seek to not do that in the Lord's house. Um, but there was a time period, and there are some churches that still do that, 
some groups that still do that, and many of them use actually a fermented beverage. Now, I had never uh, seen that, and I remember going to this uh, non-denominational church in Georgia, and we went there, and we were worshiping in, uh, at this Christmas Eve service, because my church never had a Christmas Eve service. We went to the candlelight service, and I thought it was great. I said, you know what, I'll take the Lord's Supper with all them. I went up, and they said, well, take the wafer and just dip it in there, and I dipped it in there, and I said, wow, that wafer tastes different, Okay. That is not grape juice, okay? That is not grape juice, all right? Um, that was a sour, sour uh, wafer, and I thought something was wrong with the bread, okay? Because I had never, um, never had the flavor of that in my lips. In this passage, we see uh, that they are using the Lord, in Lord's Supper, there is pure grape juice. And I'll explain to you why, and I'll explain to you how, okay? Uh, there are two types of wine described in the Bible, and I would like you to see in Luke 5, Luke 5, you'll see two different types of wine. Wine is determined in the Bible by its context. You say, is there fermented wine in the Bible? Absolutely. Is there um, pure wine in the Bible, pure grape juice of the vine? Absolutely. Both of them are used in the Bible, and the words are used synonymously... Uh, you use the word wine, you see it used for both. In Matthew chapter 5, though, we see in verse 37 the difference between the two. Jesus said, no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottle shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. Jesus describes the difference. He describes fresh grape juice being placed into a bottle, which they would use animal skins, and that's what they would store their food in. If you take a piece of leather that has been expanded with the yeast having been in there and all those things that would have made that, that wine to have been fermented, it would have expanded. And Jesus is saying, look, don't put fresh juice. You don't put fresh juice in that because it will begin to ferment and it will expand and break. The animal skin will fall open. you got to use a new vessel for the new wine. And he says that they're different, okay? There's the old wine and there's the new wine, described as different. The very first mention of wine in the Bible is Genesis chapter 9. You know what happened there? Yeah, somebody got drunk. Noah got drunk and his son Ham saw him naked and the whole nation of Canaan was cursed because of it. Noah planted a vineyard. Of course, that means he had fresh grapes. He produced alcoholic beverages with it. He got drunk. The very first mention of wine in the Bible, somebody's getting drunk. And you see that in the text, in our scripture text, around the Lord's Supper. Once again, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and Paul condemned them for that. I want you to notice what the scripture says about these things. Proverbs chapter 20, and this is why we use fresh grape juice. Proverbs, because the Bible does not contradict itself. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, wine is a mocker. Listen to what it says. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. As a pastor, I cannot put an intoxicating beverage down here for the Lord's Supper. Okay? Uh, you say it's just slightly intoxicating. I can't put an, a corrupted uh, beverage down here. Why? Because the Lord himself uses the wisest man who ever wrote, Solomon. And Solomon says, wine is a, what does he say? Mocker. He doesn't say wine is okay. He says wine's a mocker. Strong drink is raging. 
And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. I wish you could go with me where I go and deal with people that I try to help get rescued from this strong addiction of drinking. So intoxicated that they need the help of God. Our friend, Brother Harmon, described for me how he got off of heroin and got off of all those things back before he knew the Lord. He put his faith in Christ. When he put his faith in Christ and he was seeking to follow Jesus, he still struggled. The last thing for him to go was drinking. And he was so drunk. He said, you know what? I had to finally give up drinking. He said, I went from one thing to the next. And finally, God gave him victory over that. And you know what? He went over there to uh, Tanzania to try to help these people. And when he was dealing with these people in Tanzania, you know what kind of verse they kept bringing up? John chapter 2. And they said, Brother Harmon, but you see, Jesus turned water into wine. So because Jesus made wine, we can all drink. And that's their excuse for getting intoxicated and getting on heroin. Which is what they took next after they got intoxicated. And Brother Harmon said it all started with them twisting the scripture. Because if Jesus could make an intoxicating beverage, then that gave them a right to do whatever they wanted to do. Wine is a mocker. So if Jesus produced something that was intoxicating, then he's a liar. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 29 and look at what the Bible says. This is why we use pure grape juice and not wine. A lot of times there's a lack of understanding against, uh, about the word of God. And cultural traditions come in, all right? Deuteronomy chapter 29, look in verses 5 and 6. Speaking of the Lord's uh, guidance of this nation, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxing old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxing old upon thy foot. Now do any of you, if you have worn the same pair of shoes every day for the last 40 years, and they're still good, and you have the same clothes, and you've worn them every day for 40 years, and they are still good. Would you please stand? I didn't think so. We have to replace our clothing regularly, okay? Look at the next thing that happened to them. It says, speaking of them, ye have not eaten bread. Can you imagine going 40 years and not eating bread? You say, but pastor, they did eat something. They ate manna. Yeah. God made them a heavenly food that looked like coriander seed. It was not bread, my friend. And they loathed it. And they said, please give us the bread from Egypt. God says, no, I'm going to give you manna. Okay, so they had manna. It was not bread. It was manna. It was a special divine food that they had well, they were there. And you know what? You say, what will happen if there's a shortage of food in the world? Well, the same God that provided the generations gone by can figure it out in this generation too. All right? So they're, they're there and they're eating. He says, you've not eaten bread. Neither have ye, and look what he says, neither have ye drunk wine nor strong drink that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. Both wine and strong drink hinder our understanding. They hinder our relationship with God. And he says, you've not partaken of either one the entire 40 years. Can you imagine going 40 years without taking a drink? God's people, during this time, while they were wandering, while all those who rejected the faith were dying off, they did not drink any wine or any strong drink. 
and they didn't eat any bread. That's what God says. Now, God provided this for them, and he symbolized their relationship with him. It was a relationship of trust and purity. Jesus said in Matthew 26 and verse 29, But I say unto you, I will not drink thenceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In Matthew 26, verse 29. So in the, right here, I wrote on the screen, fruit of the vine. Jesus said it was fruit of the vine. He did not say it was intoxicating, and I understand it to be pure grape juice. And Jesus said he was not going to partake of it again with them until he returned in his Father's kingdom. If we turn back to our text in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, in verse, uh, look, look at verse 21, because we don't, obviously we don't want to do this, all right? For in eating, everyone taketh before the other his own supper, and one's hungry and the other's drunken. Jesus said they were, I mean, uh, Paul said they were doing things they shouldn't have done. And he says, by the way, uh, have you not houses to eat? And he tells them in verse, um, in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take heat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner, he also took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death until he come. Picturing that Jesus is going to die, that Jesus did die, and that he is going to come again. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would, what does he say? Judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be, what does he say? Condemned with the world. Look, all because the world condones certain things does not mean that we as children of God, if you know Christ is your Savior, should condone the same behaviors. He says, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together, tarry one for the other. He says, by the way, wait, take, take time. Be patient. Verse 34, and if any man hunger, let him eat where? At home. That ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Can you imagine Paul having to straighten out the Lord's Supper for this church? It must have been kind of embarrassing. Hey, by the way, you guys have been making church into a drinking party. By the way, you guys have been sitting around uh, just eating food. There was a meal that they would eat before the Lord's Supper. I've always thought about that. Um, and sometimes I would like to, maybe one time I would like to do that, where we actually sit down and we actually have a meal, and then at the end of the meal, partake of the Lord's Supper together, partake of the unleavened bread, and partake of the grape juice together. But uh, Jesus, that was obviously the way that he celebrated it with his disciples the very first time. And these believers, when they came together, they obviously were eating the bread. Uh, I've always, as a child, I always wondered, back especially when they had those little tiny square ones, I always wondered, why do we have these inedible objects in the house of God, okay? I mean, really. Why do we have these inedible objects? Now, today we have both the, uh, the uh, COVID cups, all right? It's all pre-sealed, and you got a little wafer in there if you would like that, and you prefer that. Instead, it's foam, but uh, you can have it. They call it unleavened bread. 
And then in the other, we have, uh, we have homemade unleavened bread that my wife bakes. And then we have uh, grape juice, okay? So you have those two right there for you. And uh, for some of you, this may be the first time that you've seen that. But when we worship the Lord in the Lord's Supper, we want to remember his sacrifice. And we want to take a moment to examine ourselves before we eat. And obviously in this context, we understand they were actually uh, eating in a way that was displeasing God because they had been coming to God's house and celebrating the Lord's, Lord's Supper out of selfish interests. And they were just coming to eat and have a big, big meal. He says, don't do that. You're not being, not being aware that somebody besides you didn't eat. Now today, we're probably all going to go home and have lunch. And so uh, you're going to eat somewhere else, okay? But when the plate goes by, you have the opportunity to partake of a piece of bread and take that, and we will eat together in a moment. You'll have an opportunity to take a cup of the juice and to partake of that together and to remember the body and the blood that Jesus shed, his body that was pure and sinless. And when we think of the fruit of the vine, I think it is of great symbolic uh, significance that it not be in any, wise corrupt, in any way corrupted, that it not be dirty juice, that it not be in any way fermented juice, because it is the perfect, it is symbolizing the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you may have gone to a church that actually told you uh, that, that, the, that the body, the bread, and the juice, the blood, literally become the body of Christ. No scripture teaches that. It says that they are in remembrance of him. It's a picture, it's a symbol of his sinless perfection. No corruption in his body, no corruption in his blood. And I thank God that his blood was shed. And that this year and every year, we don't have to go have another Passover lamb and all kill it together and eat it together. But the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If you know Jesus as your savior, you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. If you've put your faith in his blood, and you'll, you'll take a moment right now, let's take a moment to, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to stand, and we're going to pray, and I'll take the little one. And uh, when, we, when we pray, let's just take a moment, ask the Lord to cleanse our hearts. And if there's anything that between you and the Lord, you just want to take a moment on your knees or come forward and pray. Just take a moment to meet with God. Ask the Lord to cleanse our hearts. Examine our hearts before the Lord. As the piano begins to play, let's do business with the Lord. You want to come forward and pray, you're welcome to do that. I'm going to pray for you. And with our heads bowed, just take a moment to respond to the Lord, whatever the Lord leads you to do, however he leads you to respond this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We ask that you would help us, help us to uh, live a life that's pure, that's pleasing to you. And as we remember your sacrifice, your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, I pray that you would help us to together uh, remember that and to celebrate it and to be thankful for your great gift, the Lamb of God that died for the sins of the world.
I surrender all. What a great song.